Hey everyone, welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, your host, Jen Hatmaker. We are bringing you another episode of our transition series this week where we will examine the possibilities of transforming our country to operate out of a place of love rather than a place of hate, to operate out of a place of equality rather than a place of power differentials, and how we can realistically move in a direction of accountability and justice for all with the one and the only, the incredible, Emmanuel Acho. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here. We're in a series called For the Love of Transitions, as you know, and we are just talking to leaders and thinkers and human beings who have transitioned from one thing to another. Some of them had transitions that they made on purpose. Some of them experienced some huge either tragedy or whatever that forced them into a transition. Some of them are working on creating transition, which is kind of where we are at with today's guest. So it's interesting to be coming out of the pandemic with some conversations nationally that are now very, very, very centered. And of course, one of those is obviously racism and what we've seen, what we've collectively experienced, having just sort of emerged from, you know, a year, a year after George Floyd's murder. And it just, the list is long and apparently never ending. And at least now more than ever, not that there isn't tons more to do, but now more than ever, we are as far along as we've ever been. So I can't hardly go anywhere without this discussion being something that we are collectively worried about, concerned about, interested in, connected to, compelled by this sense of building a truly equitable culture, one we've never had. We have never had a truly equitable culture. And there's all kinds of hierarchies inside different sorts of power plays and at the intersections of race and of gender and of sexuality. And But we've never, ever had a level playing field before. And that's just becoming more and more clear, whether it's just with the advent of body cameras, obviously with social media, where so many things are able to be just now visible. Encounters are now visible where once they were just tucked away and hidden and then, of course, reframed. But here we are. Here's where we find ourselves, right? How do we transition? How? We're asking and we're asking, how do we transition our culture to ensure that all people have the same rights, that they have the same dignity, that they are perceived with the same value, with the same worth? How do we move from a system based in perceived justice to a system based in actual justice, right? I mean, these are obviously tough questions, I know. And there's not an easy answer. These are complicated and complex for sure. But today, with the help of really a superstar guest, I don't, there's no other way to say it. I hope that we can shed a little bit of light on a few next steps, on places to begin, on hope for our future, because today we have the privilege of speaking with the, I mean, very extraordinary Emmanuel Acho. You're going to love this conversation. He's so, such a, like a, a bright light 
you'll see what I'm saying when you start listening to him speak, but Emmanuel started his career. Well, first of all, he played football at the University of Texas. So I've known this kid for a long time. I watched him from my, from my seats. So we've obviously known him as, as a Texas Longhorn, but then he spent four years in the NFL into the world of broadcasting and public speaking. And so since then, he's just racked up the credentials. He's worked as the youngest national football analyst at ESPN. He was named a 2018 Forbes Under 30 selection. In 2017, his family's nonprofit, which is called Living Hope Christian Ministries, raised enough money to build a hospital in rural Nigeria. Then he wrote a book and started a conversation series called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, which is millions and millions and millions and millions of views. And then he took that work and skewed it toward a younger audience, toward a teen audience, and wrote Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy. Then recently, where you might have seen him for the first time if you're not a sports person, he stepped into the role as interim host of a little tiny franchise known as The Bachelor after the previous host made racially insensitive comments and they needed someone to step in to manage the final rose ceremony, somebody who could thread the needle with humor and warmth, but also candor and truth. And they tagged Emmanuel and he did an incredible job. And of course, we're going to talk about the bachelor and all my inappropriate questions about it. He is so engaging. You'll be so smitten with him. I enjoyed this conversation with him so much. This is a good leader. This is a good guy. I'm so happy to watch his path just continue to unfold in front of him as he leads well with just a real heart of integrity. So you guys buckle up for this incredible energized conversation with the absolutely wonderful Emmanuel Acho. Emmanuel, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to meet you. Long, long, long time fan of you. Thank you. It's great to meet you as well. And because you're in Austin and Austin is home to me, I feel like I'm touching a piece of Austin through this conversation. Yes, yes. I hope you can feel prematurely sweaty and swarmy like we do here in in this time of year. Honestly, all it takes is three ring lights in front of a podcast for me to feel sweaty prematurely. Um, so don't worry, I'm duplicating that just fine. That's good. I feel so connected to you. Um, okay, so I have already told my listeners, you know, kind of the high level stuff about you, of course, and your work and what you're doing in the world. But can you just for a second tell this community who may be unfamiliar with you, like a little bit about you and kind of your arc. How did you get to this point in your life and oh, in your career? Okay, community, I will try to keep you as engaged and entertained as possible. Born and raised in Dallas, Texas, son of Nigerian immigrants who came to America in the late 1970s. I went to an affluent, predominantly white private school. Now, this private school is an all boys school called St. Mark School of Texas. At said school, you are supposed to go on to be a national merit scholar if you go to Harvard, go to Yale, go to Stanford. True story. I was in school with a, I graduated with a young man who scored a perfect on the SAT and ACT. 
I'm at school with super geniuses. I looked in the mirror one day. I was 6'2", 220 pounds. I was like, you know what? I guess I'll play football. Sure. I go on to the University of Texas. I end up getting drafted to the Cleveland Browns, from the Cleveland Browns to the Philadelphia Eagles, play in the NFL for four years. But the climactic moment of my life thus far came actually one year ago from today, on the day that we are currently recording this, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, released June 1st, 2020. For those who haven't seen it, I, as a Black man in the midst of so much chaotic turmoil and racial tension in our world, sat in an all-white room, and for nine minutes and 27 seconds, I answered four questions that so many white people have. How do I know white people have these questions? Because I told y'all. I went to an all-white school growing up. Jen, I heard questions like, why are black people rioting? Why can black people say the N-word, but white people can't? Okay, Emmanuel, what the heck is white privilege? And somebody talk about black-on-black crime in Chicago, if you're going to talk about all this. I preemptively sat down in an all-white room and answered those four questions with a wedding videographer, recording them with my best friend, an Olympic gold medalist, standing in as my producer. Within four days... We had 25 million views. I got a call five days later, no caller ID number. I pick it up. Jen, you'll understand who this person is. All I hear is Acho McConaughey speaking. Oh, sure. Of course. I'm like, McConaughey? Like, Matthew McConaughey? He's like, yeah, man, I want to have a conversation. Fast forward, community, for the sake of keeping you all entertained and not boring you all with this story. I record episode two of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man with Matthew McConaughey. I ended up doing 10 episodes in my first season of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, seen by 80 million people. After the second episode, I get a call. Another no-caller ID number. Emmanuel, this is Oprah Winfrey's team. Are you available later today? (laughs) <laughs> yes. When Oprah asks you that, you clear the deck. Am I available? I don't care what you were doing. <laughs> Oprah, are you available? I hop on FaceTime with Oprah. Oprah is sitting in her kitchen and she asked me this question, Jen. She said this, Emmanuel, what is your intention? I'll never forget. And I said, Oprah, my intention is to change the world. I truly believe that I can. I told her, Oprah, I'm currently working on writing a book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, turning it from a visual series into a book. She said this, Jen, books? I love books. And so Oprah said, hey, I'd love to partner with you on this project. We partner together to write Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, debuts at number three on the New York Times bestsellers list. We then write Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy, which came out May 4th. It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. And here I am now talking to you, Jen, my Austin friend. It's incredible. Well done. Well done. I don't know if you expected to be an author when you struck out, but this, it's everywhere. It's found its way into the center of so many conversations. I love that you wrote a version for kids. This is why I'm so glad to follow you and learn from you and listen to you and put leaders like you in front of my son, in front of my daughter, in front of really all my kids too. I wonder, Emmanuel, if you're comfortable with it, because we're just going to get into it here. We deal with a lot of work in my world, in my community around white supremacy. Would you share your own experiences with racism, with white supremacy? Because you grew up in a white environment, so that's that's a deal. Do you feel like the, your, the trajectory is going up or down? 
I would say the trajectory of the path that we're on, and we're going to get to this, but toward creating a culture that values justice, that values equality, that we're not always behind the eight ball, just hoping for accountability, but that we get out in front of it and truly begin to dismantle all these systems that were the cornerstone was white supremacy. It's they're exactly what they're meant to be. They're operating as designed and as built. Okay, first, whenever you use words like slavery, reparations, white privilege, white supremacy, we all have to exhale and we have to take the sting off of those words. So many of those words have such sting. As soon as you hear white supremacy, people are already either clicking in or they're clicking out. For the sake of this dialogue, I'm not going to speak of white supremacy, the historical construct, which you instantly think of the KKK and people in these white hoods, tiki torchin, et cetera. Let's just talk about white supremacy literally is white people viewing themselves as supreme, right? That's much less volatile than when you associate the picture. I, growing up in my predominantly white school, I was just trying to navigate spaces being black. I was often told, you know, Emmanuel, you don't even talk like you're black. Emmanuel, you don't even dress like you're black. Emmanuel, you're black, but you're not black, black. Emmanuel, you're, you're like a white black kid. Emmanuel, you're like an Oreo, black on the outside, and the crowd said, white on the inside. So it wasn't until I got to college, Jen, that I realized how racially insensitive that was. I dressed too nice to be black. That is an implication that black people do not dress nice or that I'm a white black person because I speak proper. What are the implications? I do not think I grew up in a racist society. I do not think that America is overtly racist. I think that America is racially ignorant and racially insensitive. And there has to be a clarification. That's why I clarified white supremacy, because I'm not going to speak in volatility. But let me clarify this for people. Yeah, I'd like you to parse that out a little. If in our judicial system, Jen, we have degrees of murder, first degree murder for all you listeners, we all know it is premeditated. Second degree murder. That means it is no longer necessarily premeditated. It is a crime of passion. When you start to get to third degree murder or involuntary manslaughter, you now look for intention. Involuntary manslaughter was not intentional, but it still led to death. Okay, why the heck am I talking about murder? I will clarify. If there are degrees of murder, then you have to understand there are degrees of racism. So I don't think America is still predominantly first degree racist, nor do I think the predominant friend groups that we have. You don't own slaves or maliciously say the N-word. Oftentimes we may see second degree racism, the murder of George Floyd, a crime of passion where race played a factor. But the real racism we see and the real racism that I think most all of us listening or speaking currently between you and I have contributed to is involuntary racism. It's unintentional, but it still leads to the emotional death of our black and brown brother and sisters. That is, ah, Emmanuel, you're, you're so smart for a black person. That is, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful for a black girl. Like, that is that unintentional racism. I mean, Obama's black, but he's not really black. Like, that is where we currently exist, I think, in our society. And so 
We have to dismantle that because realistically, that's the racism that will erode. If the racism's easy to spot people owning slaves and saying the N-word, we can all collectively agree that's wrong. Where we don't all yet identify nor can collectively agree on is, oh wait, I didn't realize when I said, you don't talk like you're black, what those implications were. I didn't realize when I said, well, you gotta be good at football, you're black. I didn't realize what those implications were. Summer is here. And with this season, the talk of bathing suits and beach bodies has returned in full force as it does. But here's the thing. I love celebrating diversity and representation and age ranges, inclusivity across the swimsuit conversation, and also across the health and wellness spectrum. Because there is no one-size-fits-all in wellness either. That's what I love about Noom. With Noom, you take a path toward better health one step at a time in a customized way that works best for you. Because everyone's journey, our situations, our needs, our priorities, it all looks different. But there's no need to try to take on the whole mountain of wellness at once. With Noom, you just start where you are. Noom's psychology-based approach helps you change your mindset rather than demanding a whole new lifestyle all at once. It's flexible because we all know life happens and there's a lot of empathy and understanding. With Noom, taking care of your health is empowering instead of stress-inducing. And there's no need to fear ruining the whole program with one day off, sheesh. Noom helps us all get back on track. All you need is 10 minutes a day. Noom fits into your life on your terms. So start building better habits for a healthier, long-term result. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash for the love. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash for the love. All right, friends, here's the thing. We're all on our phones a lot. I know this, you know this, it happens. But I am going to make a little confession here. Sometimes I'm not on my phone for work. Sometimes I just cannot read another single solitary email or text thread or think about real life. Sometimes I just need a little brain break from it all. And those are the times that I might just be tapping into best fiends. Have you heard about this? It's this playful little puzzle game you play right from your phone. And you guys, it is fun. Now, I'm not like a traditional phone game type of girl because, first of all, you know me in technology. But Best Fiends is different. It's almost too fun, and it's easy to catch on. Plus, they are always coming out with new levels, thousands of them, and new events. So you're always on your toes, and it keeps you feeling challenged and engaged. What I also love are the adorable collectible characters. It's all just, I don't know, like whimsical and cute. And we just need that kind of thing right now. I recently took my first work trip in a long time. And you better believe I was playing Best Fiends during some of that travel downtime. So download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. So that's friends without the R, Best it's true and it's insidious because to the average white person it's invisible as you said it's subconscious it's it's ignorant and thus harder to identify and thus harder to root out and so i find 
I find second degree racism. And I really love that term that you just used. That's a fantastic way to think of it. Almost harder to uproot. And so here's my question for you, kind of based around that answer that you just gave. How do we begin to dismantle second degree racism? Because the the well-meaning white, of course, how do we work together here? Because it's exhausting to be on the receiving end of microaggressions all day, every day. I can only imagine. I just can only imagine. It just feels like, God, just, can I just go to bed? And so how do you see us collectively beginning to tear down those walls? I'll say to you and everyone listening the same thing I said to Oprah. Denial, spelled D-E-N-I-A-L. Don't even know I am lying. Uh, Well, see, that's hard. So you can't fix a problem, Jen, that you don't know exists. So how do we fix this issue? Well, first, we have to acknowledge the existence of it. I don't necessarily fault the individual white person. I fault the country. For example, I recently hosted The Bachelor after the final rose. And the the reason they asked me to host was because the black gentleman, the first black bachelor, he selected a white woman, Rachel, who had pictures surface of her on an antebellum plantation party back in college. I'll be real. I say this privately. I've said it publicly. I'll say it again. I don't fault Rachel. I fault the country that Rachel doesn't realize how ignorant and insensitive that was. Sure. Fault the sorority. Right? One individual. There's a construct that she was a part of that totally. was like, you know what? This isn't a bad idea to go to an antebellum plantation. For those of you all listening, antebellum in Latin translates to before the war. The war in question, the civil war that freed the slaves. So an antebellum plantation is literally notating a plantation that was in existence before slaves were free, and thus slaves would have been on said plantation. I fault the country for not holding our white brothers and sisters accountable of their insensitivity. I'm going to pivot to a place that may make some people uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, Jen, you know, we currently live in this quote unquote cancel culture. Yeah. And people are, oh my God, they're, they're up in arms. Cancel culture, how the hell? What's going on? We have to understand that we're now just being held accountable. And by we, I really mean white men. Women have been held accountable. There have been women's suffrage movements, 1920s, look no further, where women have been told how to dress. Women have been told what to say. Women have been held in check if they dress a certain way or say a certain thing. Black people, we already know they've been held accountable. I dare a black person in the 1940s or 50s to sit on the front of a bus. Totally. Held accountable. So black people have held, been held accountable for their actions. Women have been held accountable for their actions. But white men have never really been held accountable for their actions in our country, speaking generally, if I may. The issue at hand is that collectively as a society, we haven't done a good enough job holding each other accountable. Yesterday, the day before we're currently recording this, marked 100 years since the Tulsa race riots, the Tulsa race massacre. You're nodding your head in agreement is yes, so I'm assuming you know what I am talking about. Sure. I did not know what I am ta- was talking about prior to two years ago because I never learned that at my astute genius private school. I went to the number one school in Texas. Look it up. Like, not my opinion. We're literally ranked the number one school in Texas. And I did not know what the Tulsa race riot was. For those of you listening who don't know what it is, Tulsa race riot, Black Wall Street eviscerated Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, in 1921 because a black man tripped on an elevator, touched a white woman, 
white woman, you know, made accusations, et cetera. So I, I bring that all full circle, Jen, to simply say, we as a country have to do a better job of understanding the real issues. Even my white people, my white brothers that are like trying to be allies. Do you know what you're being an ally to and for? Like you, you want to be a part of the good, but do you know how? And that's, that's really the dilemma at hand. It is. It is a dilemma. And I think this is one of the reasons I love that you chose the word uncomfortable for uncomfortable conversations with a black man and then later a black boy, of course, because as far as I can tell inside my community, discomfort is a real deterrent. It's a real stumbling block to the work that you're talking about. The white community has been conditioned to do whatever it takes to maintain our own comfort and to keep any sort of discomfort at bay. If it even reeks of a little bit of shame as it should, we'll do really whatever we can to avoid that, which also includes justifying, denying, as you said earlier, it has a whole bag of tricks that helps comfort stay centered. And so you obviously know this, you launched into this whole uncomfortable conversations with a black man, knowing full well you chose the right adjective. I'd like to talk about that and what your experience has been because you have positioned yourself to make some room for that discomfort, to hold it in tension, to stay in it without kind of a side door or a back door. Can you talk a little bit about your some of your experiences inside that series, inside the book, inside inside the series, all of it? Like, what role did white discomfort play? Was it pretty pretty quick and pretty clear? That's yeah, a really good question. So first off, uncomfortable conversations with a black man was actually going to be called questions white people have. Terrible mm. title. It was so <laughs> literal. It was like I know white people have questions, but then yeah, my white friend, pretty on the nose. <laughs> yeah. My white friend called me and said, "You know, it's not just white people that have these questions. How do you feel about uncomfortable conversations?" I was like, "That's ah, too boring." I walked past a mirror. I said, "Oh, I'm a black man. Uncomfortable conversations with a black man." Jen, I believe everything great is birthed through discomfort. Think about it, right? If you want to bring forth the next Nobel Peace Prize winner, if you want to bring forth the next future president, the next author, the great, the next great pianist, you birth a child and you go through no small amounts from what I have been told and what people like you have experienced. You go through no small amount of labor pains to birth something great. And so if we want to birth empathy, we all got to get uncomfortable. Here's the beautiful part. Things that are uncomfortable are only uncomfortable until you've done it a certain amount of times. And each time the discomfort begins to wane, it starts to become less and less. And so that's it. And I think the real trick for all of us is to sit in that discomfort for the sake of growth. One of the most uncomfortable questions I've ever been asked, I was on an Oprah conversation. It's called the Oprah conversation for Apple TV. And somebody said, Emmanuel, the Holocaust was both more lethal and more recent than slavery, but Jewish people have been able to recover. Why can't Black people recover? I instantly was offended. I was like, the ignorance of that question. However, I said, if you would not have asked that, you would have constantly been thinking that and been carrying that around with you. You're right. Yeah. So I would rather you ask that question so that I can give you an answer so we can get rid of that thought, then you carry around such ignorance. That's good. So to my white brothers and sisters who have your questions, 
go seek and search for the answer, whether in a history book, a movie, an individual that knows. But remember, there's a difference between an autobiography and a biography. An autobiography is written by the author about the author. A biography is simply written about the author. American history is an autobiography. It's white history written by white people. That's right. And if you write your own autobiography, I promise it's going to be much better told than if someone else were to write it. So with that being said, don't just search for the answers in lazy places. Mm, mm, well, that's a good word right there. And I'd like to add to that, that in this day and age, if we are genuinely seeking to learn, to listen, to be exposed to a completely different experience. We don't have to look far. And so we don't have to put the burden of education on every black friend we have on every neighbor. We have it is it's an unfair burden to say you educate me because we have eyes. We have ears, we can read. We learned to read in kindergarten. If we want to know, there are so many leaders that we can just sit quietly and learn from. I have the I have a friend named Latasha Morrison, and she runs an incredible organization called Be the Bridge. And it's a racial reconciliation, well, really movement. It's 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 a really incredible organization, but part of its work is it has an online private Facebook group made up of essentially white people wanting to learn and then tons of people of color kind of working together toward that end. And she has a rule, which I love, which is white people, when you're new to this community and you come in our private Facebook group, you are essentially forbidden to say anything. You can't make a post and you cannot even respond on somebody else's post for three months. Your job is to be a learner, a quiet learner. Because she discovered early on in the community that white guilt, like white shame is so prevalent and it derails every conversation because the white tears are immediately centered over whatever the real substance was of the discussion, right? She's just discovered that people are a little bit more ready to listen and to talk, which I always thought was really wise. My therapist taught me, said, spend the first five minutes in conversation assuming you're wrong. And that's essentially what it sounds like your friend Tasha is doing is to spend five minutes assuming you're wrong. Now, I love that ideology. The kicker is doing that in such a polite way that doesn't seem so offensive. Like you need to just listen. But in all honesty, like, and I'll say this, if I wanted to learn about the discomfort in childbirth, yes, I could read a book. I could watch a movie, but it would probably behoove me to talk to an individual that's had to birth a child. Because a book is only going to tell you so much and a movie the same. And, and then I'll further say that by saying I could ask a man who's been in a room while his significant other or partner or loved one is giving birth. But it's probably best to ask a woman that's given birth because they've really gone through it. And it's almost the same way I feel about understanding what's going on in our society. I love books. I love movies. But when you can with your colleagues that are people of color that have lived it as they are willing, don't put that responsibility solely on them. But as they are willing, I think it's just that's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's how we learn. Totally. Yeah, that's probably been my best teacher are those conversations just around a table. My girlfriend Kelly has put this phrase into our vernacular when we want to keep dialogue open and moving, which is just. Tell me more. 
Like, tell me more. Tell me how that felt. Tell me what you were thinking. Tell me how you reacted. And that just creates room. It just creates room for this to grow and room for understanding and empathy to develop. Because from that place, from a place of empathy and connection, I have great hope for what we can do in our culture. Great, great hope. I, I, I really do believe in our capacity to dismantle inequitable systems and, and to even find it and uproot it in our own hearts. We have a real long way to go. And I wanna to talk to you about this real quick. I wonder if you can talk for just a minute about uncomfortable conversations with a black boy. What made you skew down to a younger audience? And can you talk about that project? And to use Oprah's word, your intention for it and what you are hoping it creates in the world. Yeah. So I believe if you if you wanted to change a tree or change the trees of life, you could cut down the branches, you could pluck the leaves, but it's really best you address the root. And children are the root of racism in our society. Like we're, we're, we're sitting here trying to be reactive instead of proactive. We're trying to fix the, 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 the result as opposed to the actual ailment. You're right. And so I said, you know what? It all starts with our youth. I wish someone could have had these conversations with my young white brothers and sisters growing up because they would have realized, man, maybe I shouldn't say you're so smart for a black man. Or better yet, Jen, they would have understood okay, wait, the things that black guys wear on their heads, the do-rags and the wave caps, it doesn't make them hood. They're actually just wearing it to put their hair down to promote waves, a certain hairstyle within the black community. I just wish there was more understanding. And so I wrote Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy because I know some parents are ill-equipped to have this dialogue with their children. And so I wanted to equip both the child, ages 10 to 14 or 12 to 16, dependent upon the maturation of your child, but also the parents. Today, I want to talk to the anxious ones, to the stressed ones, to those who might be feeling all kinds of ways that don't represent the core of who we really are. I know I can raise my hand here. No matter how impervious we think ourselves to be, we all have our thresholds. And many of those thresholds have been met or exceeded. For me, therapy is a huge part of this care package that I implemented in my own life. But if you're new to therapy or trying to figure out a way to make it work, it all can feel difficult That's where BetterHelp can come in and be such a beautiful thing. It has an accessible bar for entry. BetterHelp is professional therapy from the comfort and convenience of your own space. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. They're committed to facilitating the right therapeutic matches too, so it's easy and free to change counselors if needed. They have this entire network of therapists that specialize in everything from depression, stress and anxiety, to relationships, trauma, anger, LGBTQ issues, grief, everything. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to give your body and mind the care it needs and deserves. 
So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash for the love. Join more than 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. We all play favorites with our clothes, shoes, accessories. You know you do it. And for me, those shoes are my Rothy's slip-on sneakers. They just are. Because let's face it, it's 2021 and no one has time for walking in uncomfortable shoes. I have a few pair of their sneakers, actually, but I play my own favorites with their gray camo version. I am no style blogger, y'all, but these go with everything while delivering a little something-something that's just not your solid color sneaker. And they're not just comfy and cute. They're also easy to keep, as good as new, because you just toss them in the washing machine. Rothy's also has the more traditional lace-up sneaker, along with adorable wrap sandals, flats, you name it. All super comfy, like walking on clouds, sisters. What I also love about Rothy's is that they are a socially responsible company operating with care for the planet. They are reducing their footprint by crafting shoes and handbags out of thread made from 100 million plastic water bottles that would have otherwise been ocean bound. Upgrade your closet with washable, sustainable, stylish shoes and bags from Rothy's. Plus, they just launched men's shoes. So make sure to check them out for you or the guy in your life. You can find your new favorites right now at rothys.com slash for the love. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash for the love. I love this. This also means to really put our hand to the plow in terms of what are, what are we teaching our kids? To your great point, I never heard about the Tulsa massacre. Never. I was grown. I didn't even learn that Japanese Americans were in internment camps. I did not even learn that in my public high school. I had no idea that happened. And so we just have a whitewashed history. It was, it's autobiographical, as you said. And so thank you for adding another layer of education into this is what, this is how it is bit by bit that we begin to lower the age of exposure and then really have a completely different outcome. Okay. I cannot let you go without at least we've got to talk a little bit more about the bachelor. I just have to know. I mean, first of all, when they named you, for the final rose ceremony, that is a pitch perfect choice. They nailed it. What did you think of this? You just tell the truth. Did you ever watch this show? Were you like The Bachelor or were you like, I watch every season? I don't watch actually. I kept up to date because Rachel Lindsay, another University of Texas alum, close friend of mine, was the first black bachelorette. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so I've kept up with the show since that. And I kept up with this season tangentially only because the first Black Bachelor. Sure. I was super surprised when I found out I was was being considered, but it didn't make a lot of sense. And at this point, I realize I'm the most qualified to deliver this message at this moment in this space. There are several individuals who are much more knowledgeable about the history of being Black in America than I am. Much, much, much more knowledgeable. But by the grace of God, I've just been gifted as a communicator. And so it's not necessarily what you know, but what can you get the listeners to know? So it was quite the experience. It was incredibly challenging. 
Was it? The hardest thing I've ever had to do on TV for several Was weeks. it really? And is that just because the tension was so crackling, which it was? It was navigating race and love. Everybody watches the show for love, but I had to do my job to deliver racial reconciliation, even to those who didn't want to listen. So challenging, but it went great. I, I didn't envy your position to have to thread that needle. You know, the final rose ceremony doesn't usually also include a dissertation on racial tension. So you were really tasked with something challenging, but you did a beautiful job. I watched every second of it. We all did. And you couldn't have done a a lovelier job. And you had somehow you managed to hold out like possibility for connection. and I don't know how you did it. It had a gentle way about it, even as it was direct and candid. You are fantastic at it. And you're just great, period. I I love to see your courage really in all the places that you are. It seems like there's just one version of you and it's the same guy all the time. And I really love that. You dip into some really different spaces, but you're you. You're just who you are in all those places and you're authentic and you're courageous. You could set aside a lot of these conversations for the sake of the comfort of your viewers and your listeners. And you don't, you don't, you stay, you keep your foot on the gas and you do it with a lot of generosity. You have a generosity of spirit. I think that creates a lot of room for dialogue around your work. And so doing great. You're doing really, really great. I have one last question for you. And this is just what I ask everybody in every single episode on this show. What is saving your life right now? First and foremost, God. I'm a huge man of faith. So my relationship with Jesus and God and outside of that, honestly, that's really the only answer. But for the sake of not speaking Christianese, I will also say my calling. And my calling for racial reconciliation is keeping me going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well done. Well done. Hey, thanks for being on today. Of course. Thanks. You've just brought a lot of joy to a lot of people for a lot of time, a lot of years. And just so much pavement ahead of you. It's exciting to watch. Okay. Well... He's a star. He's a star. Uh, I loved meeting him so much. Guys, if you're not already following Emmanuel on the socials, you're going to want to. He is a great follow. If you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have this entire episode up for you, including show notes and all of Emmanuel's social handles, links to his books, links to his website, everything that you need. You can get everything Emmanuel over there because you're going to want to follow him. He is both entertaining and educational. Like you get kind of a one-two punch because he's really funny too. And so I really love following him on Instagram. And I love that he, I love his work. I love what he's saying right now. And I appreciate that he holds this kind of center of strength in the middle of all the rooms he's in all the time. He's just a real person of character. And I think this is why he's just like attracting so many people right now. We're going to have this conversation on this show in my world forever. So there's no such thing as too much of it. There's no such thing as we've already talked about this. Let's just keep going.
Keep going, keep listening, keep learning, keep asking new questions, keep hearing new experiences and new perspectives, keep broadening our perception and even broaden our own self-assessment. Where are we? You know, Emmanuel made some great points that a lot of our racism is second degree, right? It's unintentional and uninformed and ignorant. That's the hardest kind. It is our work to root that out. And so conversations like this continue to like shine a lantern for us to see maybe some hidden places in our own thoughts that are coming out unintentionally. So I really appreciate his time and thanks for listening guys. More to come in this incredible series. I loved this series. I am fascinated by the people in the transition series. Absolutely fascinated. I mean, This whole entire series has energized me. It's very, very electric. If you've missed any of the episodes, go back and pick them up. We have had just really some special guests. Okay, so come back next week. More to come. And thanks for being an incredible community. On behalf of Laura and her production team and Amanda and I, we love you and we're grateful to serve you. See you next week.